Hey, what's up? It's me, David, host of the First Four Years podcast. Carving out your own path as a creative professional or an entrepreneur is not just a simple to follow process. It's an unfolding journey of self-discovery, learning, and development. So think of this podcast as a journal of that process, what it's really like in the early phase of starting out and building your own path as a creative today. And if you're coming with me on that journey, let's take that next step forward. Welcome to the first four years. Jay is somebody who I have witnessed recently making the leap from working at a venture-backed startup called Crosschecks to within a few months building a business that's been able to sustain him uh, full-time. And I think that's something that's unique that I know a lot of people who listen to this show are trying to do themselves, which is maybe you've got a job now, but you've got a side project and you're looking to have that take off in a way that you can jump full-time. But there's definitely an art to doing that. Um, and so I'm going to talk to Jay Klaus today. He's here. Jay, say hello. Hello. Glad to be here. Yeah, welcome. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of background on Jay. Uh, I met Jay in the Business Builders Club where he was the president the year after I graduated. Um, it was a, a business club at Ohio State. Um, he's very involved in a lot of different organizations around Columbus, Ohio. The first being Startup Weekend, uh, which is a weekend-long startup uh, launch event, I suppose you could call it. Uh, he's part of the Create, uh, Create Columbus Commission, which is an, an organization in Columbus um, that basically works with the mayor to advocate for certain groups' um, interests, especially like alongside tech. He helped uh, run a company called Tixers, which was acquired in 2015. And he's just really involved in a lot of different things around the Columbus City. Um, Jay, do you want to pitch what you're working on right now? Yeah. So after I left uh, Crosschecks and got out on my own, I started a company called Unreal Collective. And Unreal Collective is a community made up of what I call micro communities or small working groups. And they participate in a 12-week intensive to go from point A to point B. And what that looks like is anyone that comes into Unreal Collective is already working on something, some sort of project or a business, whether they're becoming uh, uh, full-time from freelancing or trying to move from doing part-time work to full-time work, just starting a project or creating better habits. Everyone has their own starting point and they have their own ideal goal state. And they come into this 12-week intensive. We work together to uh, line out their goals. And then we put together an action plan so that over that 12 weeks, they get to that end goal state uh, by working with four other individuals on a weekly basis. We do a call. It's very akin to a mastermind group, if you've heard of that. But um, the idea is by putting together five minds instead of one, you're going to be able to work through challenges uh, and get to where you want to be faster than if you're trying to do it alone. And uh, what is it about the people who are interested in Unreal uh, Collective that sort of ties them together? Who are these types of people who are looking to make the next step in their lives? Yeah, the people that get involved with Unreal, I say they need to be driven and ambitious because I'm not going to do the work for you and neither are the people in your working group. You have to do that work yourself. Uh, so you have to have an innate drive. But by being around that group of people and knowing that you're going to have an update to give to them every week and action items that you've declared and are responsible for, it's a system for accountability. Um, and so not only are they driven and ambitious, but they're also open and generous. Because just as often as you are talking about your project, you're going to be listening to other people talk about their projects and you're going to need to give feedback to them, really hear them out and try to help them along their way too. Um, and these people look like a lot of things, mostly artists and entrepreneurs. I, th I think the three groups of people that uh, gravitate to Unreal are freelancers or part-timers um, who are going full-time, someone that's starting a business just right out of the gate for the first time, and um, people who have already been in business and they're trying to take their business to the next level. And I group those people according to basically where they are in their journey uh, so that they're around people who are going to be very helpful for them and that they're going to be helpful for the people in their group too. Awesome. And why can't people hold themselves accountable? Like what's, um, what's a recurring theme for these people? Why, why are they having so much trouble with that? 
Well, the hard part is, and I know you can relate to this and I can relate to this too. There's just not a roadmap or a blueprint for the things that we're doing. And so a lot of times people are working in isolation and they, they lay out their goals and they know where they're going, but it's really easy to get to a point where you're kind of circling around and you're thinking, is, is this the right way to go? And you can get demoralized and just like slip for a few days. And so having that mechanism in place for every week, you're going to be checking in with this group. It helps a lot. Um, a lot of these people are self-motivated to a point. I think everyone's self-motivated to a point. But keeping that system in place so that uh, you really know that not only are you responsible to yourself, you're responsible to others and having that public accountability helps a lot for people trying to make progress faster and not backslide. Has this, uh, has this helped you and your own accountability a lot? Like how is that, uh, how has this group empowered you the way you're hoping to empower them? Yeah, totally. Uh, and actually this is one of the things that I love the most about it is I facilitate all the calls. And so by sort of proxy, I get to participate in all of these groups. So I'm beholden to every group that I facilitate, uh, and it's helped me a lot because I've put together a framework that I work with everybody through and I'm following that same framework myself. So when someone joins Unreal, we do a goal setting exercise uh, with a framework that I put together. And so I did that same exercise with myself. And then every week we declare action items, which we track in a public spreadsheet. And I do the same thing for my goals. And so I'm getting the full benefit that they are. Um, and, you know, I, I talk to everybody in these groups, so I get a lot of feedback myself. But by going through that process, not only am I getting the same benefit and the same accountability, but I'm understanding what the experience is like for everybody that's going through. And so if something seems off to me as a quote unquote participant or a member, I can change that and make that better for everybody else involved. So I've, I've really liked that. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go back to college. So, you know, I think you were somebody who excelled in college. You were somebody who uh, was doing stuff that not everybody else was doing. Namely, you started a website called Market OSU, which is actually still alive today. Um, you were trying to start businesses. You were very involved in the, uh, I know, with the journalism school and obviously with the Business Builders Club, like I mentioned. What was your mindset about college uh, when you entered? That's a good question. My entire extended family are high school educators, except for one of my older sisters. I'm talking my parents, my oldest sister, my brother-in-law, my aunts and uncles, their kids. And so that was a lot of what I thought the world was when I was in high school. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to college. They went to Ohio Northern, which is a pretty small college here in Ohio. And I knew I didn't want to do that. Um, and so my other older sister, Emily, she went to Ohio State. I got to visit her and see that I really enjoyed the size and the options available. It just seemed like a lot of opportunity, especially for someone who didn't know exactly what they wanted to do. And so I thought, well, if I go there, I'm going to have a lot of options. Uh, so you, you didn't I, know what you wanted to do, and therefore you went to a place with a lot of options. Exactly. Yeah, I didn't know what it was I wanted to do. I had some some skills that I knew I had. Like I knew that I liked to write. Um, and so that was the first thing I tried at Ohio State was I, I said, okay, I'm in, an, I'm in the, the, the exploration major, which is undecided. What can I do to employ my writing skill? And that's how I got involved with the journalism program at Ohio State and writing for the school paper. But I, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, and you're, you're still and, writing now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of come full circle because I started in journalism and wrote a ton uh, I was in the program for over a year, but I went full force into it. I did an independent study, and then I got signed into some upperclassmen classes as a freshman. Uh, I followed the football team and the soccer team and the wrestling team, and I did an internship during the summer back at my hometown paper. Um, and then I did a whole long, whole year-long internship at the College of Law, Moritz College of Law in the communications department. So the body of work that I wrote in that year ish in the journalism college is crazy. <laughs> it's like super broad. And then I got into entrepreneurship, which I considered to be kind of mutually exclusive from writing. And now, you know, fast forward to today, I'm doing both of them in tandem, which is kind of a cool full circle event. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. Uh, when I was getting ready to leave 
my job. I, I knew that uh, my time there was dwindling down to a matter of months. I didn't know exactly when it would be. I decided that I wanted to start a daily practice of writing. And this came from an exercise I did with my coach uh, where I, I basically figured out that the lie I was telling myself was that I was not creative myself. And so it's funny, I actually watched a, an ad on Facebook, which was for that, uh, it's called Masterclass, it's a company called Masterclass, and they they do courses with really well-known teachers, but the teachers are people like uh, Serena Williams teaching tennis and Kevin Spacey teaching acting and Usher teaching performance. They had a class on comedy with Steve Martin, and in this ad, he said, you are a thought machine. Anything you see or experience can be used as an idea. And just at the same time that I figured out that this lie I was telling myself of not being creative, I saw this ad and I said, you know what, I'm going to do something where every day I force myself to be creative. And the easiest path I saw for that, the most natural path and something I would enjoy is writing. And so I began writing every day. And to kind of force that behavior, instead of relying on motivation, I started up my email list again. And I didn't know what the purpose of that list was going to be other than, like I said, a forcing function to employ this daily habit of writing. And since that day in March, uh, I've written every day. And that was what really led to my ability to market this new business through my email list. That email list grew because of my writing. And then I was able to market the memberships for Unreal Collective through that email list. And so now I see them very well intertwined um, because the things that I work through with people in Unreal, I write about a lot. And that becomes a really good, like I said, funnel lead generator for the business. So you don't have to go to business school to start a business. <laughs> no, uh, you don't have to do anything necessarily to start a business. Talk about some of your community, uh, whether it was in college or right after college. How did you sort of find uh, like-minded people for yourself to go on this journey? I was just talking to somebody about this, and I think the idea of community in my life is super interesting because for a long time, I just didn't have the vocabulary for that. What I was doing was I was just surrounding myself with people who were smarter than me so I could learn from them. And then I realized that I just really enjoyed being around them and I kept doing that. But I didn't think of community as a big part of my life until that sort of entered my vocabulary much more recently. Um, Smart, but smarter than you how? Smarter than me in terms of things that I'm interested in. They also have shared interest or experience and they just have much deeper experience and understanding around it. So that as I talk to them, I'm learning all the time. And it could just be smarter on, you know, one valence. But when they talk about that and we we both share our interests around that, maybe, it, maybe it's writing, I get to learn a lot just by listening to them. I don't want to be the smartest pe person in the room because then I'm not learning. Um, and I know you, you share that, right? Right. And so you, uh, you started building a network. This was in college. Yeah. And that came from the Business Builders Club, which you mentioned in the intro. That was the... That's the Undergraduate Entrepreneurship Club at Ohio State. Uh, it was a real eye-opener for me when I went to the first pitch event with the BBC. I was a freshman, and I was in this pitch competition. And it was just because I had an app idea, like everybody had an app idea. And somebody in my dorm said, you should pitch this at this competition. And I didn't know what any of that meant, but I applied and I got in, which is a small miracle because it's actually a hard competition to get into now. And I went and I pitched. And I did a horrible job. <laughs> like I had a video that was supposed to be the first half of the presentation and it didn't work. So I had to explain what that video was supposed to be. But the great thing was I was the first person to pitch, which means that I got to watch all the other uh, entrepreneurs, all the other students that were pitching. And what I took away from that event was I was in journalism and I was writing about people doing really cool stuff. But here are people my age with the agency to do really cool stuff themselves. And so that's why I really got involved at the BBC because that was that first room where it was like, I am not the smartest person here. Uh, I'm the, by far the least experienced. And I'm learning a ton from these people. And this is a whole other world for me. 
I didn't realize that this world existed. I didn't know I had the permission to go out and start things on my own. How many more times did you pitch uh, to that club? Like talk about um, some of the other experiences there. I think I pitched three times and every time I got fourth place, which is just outside of the top three, which means I never got any money. Uh, but it was, it was a great experience. Um, and I love doing it, but did, did you ever question, uh, I think some people get started down this path. Maybe they want to start a business. You've got a group of people who are, um, not naive, but they sort of just have a hope that it can happen. And there's some people who, once they start hitting those failures, um, which are really just snags in the road, they start to think maybe that I'm not cut out for this. Do you ever have that thought that like, you know, you get fourth a few times, uh, maybe this isn't for me? Well, the biggest thing I got from that was maybe this idea isn't that great and that's okay. For me, I was always just trying to get my feet wet and learn more. And the thing about pitching ideas in college, you're always, your market is always college students. You're always thinking of things that can solve your problems as you do really all, most of the time. But the college market just really isn't there. But the thing I took away from most of those events was even when I didn't place or didn't win, there was always somebody, whether it was another student or whether it was one of the judges, the mentors, they always came up and gave me really positive, constructive feedback and were encouraging to keep going. They always said, you know, just keep going with this. Keep me posted. I would love to help you with this. It was never like you didn't finish in the top three, which means that this idea is invalid, which means you should stop. It was, here's why you didn't crack the top three. Here are things you can focus on and work on and let me know how I can help. So they took you seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And I've thought about that a lot in different terms too. There's a lot to be said about somebody that is not necessarily your peer treating you like a peer and the motivating factor you get from that. But yeah, and that's kind I, of the same as the people that you were mentioning who are smarter than you and sort of letting you be in the room with them. Totally, totally. What is it that you think that, um, so, you know, obviously people who are successful, their time gets more and more limited. What was it about what you were up to or the attitude that you brought um, that made them want to take that time for you and, and take you seriously? Well, I think people will make time for somebody that they know is going to do the work. When when you're not asking for somebody's time for them to do the work for you, and you can say, you know, I, I'm working towards this regardless, but I have this problem, or I would really like to ask you a few questions around this. They're much more open with their time because they can see, okay, I know how this is going to benefit this person. And it's really just me giving them some insight and I trust that they're actually going to do the work, so I'm not wasting my time. And that's something I've taken super seriously my whole life, or at least my whole adult life, is being very, very careful not to waste anybody's time. And that builds up a little bit of a track record, too. So there's there's an element of your personal brand that sort of starts to accrue over time once you're uh, being taken seriously more often. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that's just being a man of your word. And I didn't have that to start with a lot of these people. Um, and so really, it is a testament to how committed those mentors were to the club. Uh, but I, I don't think that's atypical. I'm sure there are those people in communities all over the country and all over the world. What are three hacks that a student can take or three things a student can take away uh, to make their college experience very beneficial to them leaving college if they want to go down the startup track? Well, the cliche is that college is sort of a golden ticket to, to talk to anybody. And it's a cliche because it's true. If you find that you're interested in something, there is almost certainly an organization centered around that interest that you should get involved with. And if there's not, that's probably even a better opportunity to get that started because you're probably not the only person that's interested in that. So getting involved with organizations at the student level that are aligned with what you're doing is huge. And when you go to those organizations, they're going to have ties to people in the community who have affinity for that club. Just like the mentors and the entrepreneurs have affinity for the Business Builders Club, they will give just about any member their time with a very low baseline of that person exhibiting like drive and interest. <laughs> and so simply, getting simply by affiliation. Yeah, totally. And so if you get on their calendar and you show them that you are serious. And you form that relationship. I, I remember when I was in college, 
and we we had meetings every week. Every week a speaker came in and there were just incredible speakers who were doing awesome stuff in the community, just taking an hour, an hour and a half out of their day to come talk to some college kids. But I always told myself that I would go down and meet every one of those speakers, introduce them myself and uh, follow up with them afterwards, get their email, add them on LinkedIn, send them a personal note on this on this message on LinkedIn and follow up with them, especially if there's something I could actually actionably take away from them. I would follow up and say, hey, it was great to meet you. I'm doing X. I would love to talk to you about Y because I know of your background. Uh, I know you're super busy. If you have time, you know, I'd really appreciate it. Otherwise, no worries. Let me know a good time for you in the next couple of weeks. There's a lot of intricacies around how you message people like that. But uh, I was very strong on the introduction plus the follow-up so they could tie uh, my face to a name. And then I've just kind of built this bridge into perpetuity as long as I don't burn it. Yeah, and, and everybody can do that, right? Right, exactly. So what else would a student who's in college now, what could they do that's going to help them after they leave school? The first thing is, sounds like, one, they've got this ticket that allows them to speak to anybody. And if they're good about uh, talking to them when they see them and then following up either through LinkedIn or with an email, they can sort of build this bridge. What else can, what are two other things that a student can do to um, sort of have success in college, but then be kind of launched out in a quality way? Yeah, take some internships with with a startup. I recommend that even if you don't think you're going to go into startup, you learn so much more working directly with the entrepreneur and they don't, you know, they don't expect a ton from you, frankly. They want you to come in and take some direction, some loose direction, go forward and move. And that's what's benefit beneficial about an internship with a startup is you're going to live in ambiguity and that's kind of your first time as a you know, late teenager, a very new adult where you have to get used to ambiguity because they're going to say, hey, we have this problem, go figure it out. And you're used to getting, you know, a test or a worksheet that has very, very tactical direction and a right or wrong answer. That doesn't exist in the startup world or in real life, really. And so that's fantastic experience. And you get to sit there alongside the founder and just hear wisdom and knowledge and understand their experience all the time. They'll probably invite you out to some event where you can meet more people. Um, really, really recommend uh, that type of internship. So jump right in. Totally. What would be the third thing that you could do? I think the last thing is to take that same approach of uh, finding your interests in an organization at the college level and now take the leap to parlay those connections to an organization in college to a community organization uh, around the same interests. Because then, and this is something I lucked into, all three of these things. Then once you graduate, you've already created ties in the community. People already know you. And it's a very seamless transition to contributing at a community level and uh, people knowing who you are. So you can just immediately kind of contribute uh, in the same vein that you were in college. And so an example of this was at the BBC, you know, that's an entrepreneurship entrepreneurship organization. I started going to meetups around town for entrepreneurs in the tech community as like a sophomore and junior in college. And so by the time I graduated, it was more like, oh yeah, you finally graduated? Cool. Then who is this kid coming up here and, and meeting me for the first time? Everyone already knew who I was and it was a seamless transition out of college into the community. And then I could start just looking at opportunities that were coming to me because once you're graduated and you have more time, um, people take you a little bit more seriously. Now you can take these opportunities that are available to, you know, grownups <laughs> and, and run with them. How do I know if the idea that I have, um, you know, maybe I'm in school, maybe I'm out of school. How do I know if the idea that I have for a business is any good? Uh, you're not going to know until you talk to a lot of people about it. And this is, this is something that I learned, A, doing it, but by starting a couple of companies and running with them, I kind of learned product management by, uh, by fire. Uh, at the first company you mentioned, Tixers, that was just a team of two or three of us. And so we learned how to do everything, but what we learned was you've got to go talk to your users and get their feedback. And you should do that sooner rather than later. Um, and so if you have an idea, just start talking to people about it. A lot of people are really scared to share their ideas and they think, well, if I talk to people about it, they're going to steal it. And 
almost certainly that's not true. And if they do, then you're moving too slowly, probably. Because <laughs> most ideas, especially when you start, first start pitching them, aren't that great. And they take some massaging and learning and understanding how to position it and who to position it to. No one's going to just drop everything they're doing and start running with your idea. What most people will try to do is just be really helpful and be positive and direct you in the right direction so you can kind of polish that idea to a point where people would buy it and you can start selling it. And so I'd say the ultimate answer of, is this idea any good or not, is can you get people to pay for it? And, uh, how, and how would you go about starting those conversations? I mean, I think for a lot of people, it's scary to reach out to strangers. What does that look like, even from a tactical level? How are you, how are you finding people to talk to about your idea? Well, you can always reach out to your immediate network and ask them about it. They're probably going to be a little too generous and soft on you. It's, it's better, in my opinion, to talk to some strangers who fit your target demographic. And you're, at the beginning, your target dem- demographic is going to probably be an assumption. So if you're starting this college marketplace like I did in college, and you think your target demographic is anyone aged 19 to 23 who's at Ohio State, uh, you got to go talk to those people. If you're starting a shampoo company and you think your shampoo is going to be for women aged 25 to 32, you should go try to talk to women aged 25 to 32 and then also people who aren't women aged 25 to 32 and get their feedback too and see if your assumptions kind of hold up. Do these people have this need that you think you're fixing? Are they aware of that problem? Are they searching for a solution to that problem already? And um, what other problems do they have that you might be able to solve? It's... There's a, there's a lot that goes into customer interviews and uh, creating surveys or questionnaires that we could get super tactical into. But um, at the end of the day, it's, a, it's about feedback and seeing if people will buy what you're trying to sell. Have you invested uh, a lot of sort of time and effort in, um, I guess, just like personal growth or education after college? Totally. Uh, absolutely. And it's been mostly within the last probably year year and a half. Um, You know, what people don't think about all the time is we're constantly investing in books, audiobooks, paperback books, even podcasts are sort of investing time into your education. But I've worked with a personal coach. Um, I know you have too. We have the same same personal coach or one of them. Um, I've invested in Alt-MBA, Seth Godin's Alt-MBA course, which is a 30-day intensive, a four-week intensive I've invested in communities. I've invested in uh, buying products. And some of that is just to get into the community. Sometimes I honestly pay money to get access to certain people, whether it's a product they built. Now I, you know, I have a plausible reason to reach out to them and talk to them and start forming a relationship. But working with a coach, working within communities, um, it's been a huge part of my last year and a half. And it's, it's, it's super foundational because any growth you have personally is now baseline improvement for everything you kind of pile into your life afterwards. That changes your lens and the way you approach everything following, which could have a, you know, a compounding and exponential effect on everything you do. Is social media important? Like uh, you've you've built this network, you uh, keep in touch with a lot of people. Where does social media fit in this equation, Um, especially for those who are trying to start a business? Hmm. This is, this is kind of complex. Social media has been really important for me for maintaining relationships. Social media has never been big for me in starting relationships. And if it comes to starting a business, it really depends what type of business you're starting and who your audience is and how you can reach them. You know, at, at a base level, I say, if you're going to start a business, you don't need to worry about registering a Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat for your business unless you're going to use it consistently because a dead social media channel for a live business is not beneficial. It's actually a detriment. But if your customers are on Facebook and you can reach them that way or they're on Instagram and you can showcase your products that way, it can be beneficial. The real benefit I've found with social media is twofold. Everyone that I meet and make a genuine connection with, I add on Facebook now. I used to be LinkedIn. Sometimes I still do both. But I generally add them on Facebook to kind of solidify that relationship. But also, it keeps you close to a lot of people. And you can sort of maintain proximity and um, 
this tight relationship just by seeing what they're doing and what they're experiencing and vice versa. I meet with people that I haven't seen in months, but because they are, they're, they're friends with me on Facebook and they see my updates or they read my emails, we pick things up super, super easily. But the, just by virtue of having a feed of activity, you see somebody's face right next to their name all the time. And the biggest benefit I've found is being able to smash through Dunbar's number. And that's this this idea that you can only have a certain number of close friendships at any given time. I forget what the number exactly is. It might be like 200. But I think by having the social media feed, I remember faces and names very strongly. I stay very close to a lot of people and I've broken through that number. And I think people would say the same about me. And then after you have, you know, all these people on these social networks, now it's really easy to put out a message and hit a lot of them that you might not think to get in touch with personally. Uh, it becomes kind of a megaphone. But people, uh, I was gonna say people tend to really, it's, it seems, um, you know, I'm not on Facebook, but from what I can tell, people seem to really enjoy um, when you do speak up and sort of, uh, it's, it sounds like you do a good job checking in with people, but also posting your own thoughts and opinions, um, whether it's through email or Facebook or Twitter. How do you explain uh, the success, I guess? You know, I don't know if you can be successful or not on social media technically, but um, how do you explain the interest in your posts? What, what is it about what you're writing um, that you think makes people want to follow along, be it the email or Facebook? Yeah, I think the most obvious answer is just authenticity. You have to, there's there's a ton of quote unquote original content out there on Instagram, on Facebook, on Snapchat, Twitter, but so much of it is unoriginal and it's not even authentic. It's not genuine. So I, I'm in the lucky position in that I don't really have to worry if my employer sees something because I don't have one. I don't have to worry if potential employers see something I'm saying. I don't I don't care. I'll speak my mind and be very open, which people gravitate towards because they connect to it for one, and also it's relatable. And a lot of times it's kind of aspirational. People people wish that they would be that open. And that that's a self-imposed boundary. Anyone can be that open. Uh, it's, they just don't because so many people use social media as sort of a highlight reel. They think it's a competition to stack your achievements and look great to the outside. And so you only put the highlights out there. What if I'm trying to be professional? Like what if I am concerned about um, what my employer might think? Like how do I be professional and open at the same time? Well, it's, you can be authentic without being fully transparent, right? It's, it's being choosy about what you put out there and when, and so if you if you're having an issue at, with with your coworkers or your boss, maybe that's not what you're authentic about online. Maybe you're authentic about, you know, I've had a really hard day today and uh, I'm struggling with this personal project I'm working on. I could really use uh, some feedback on this or, you know, I'm excited because. I just cleaned my room, you know, like low level stuff that is real that people can relate to. You don't have to be fully transparent to be authentic. It's just better to post less and be real with people. Um, you know, for me personally, I, I have a benchmark of I really try to post to Facebook once a day max. And it has to be at a certain level of interesting or novel for me to bother because I don't want people to think that I'm just sharing whatever um, because they stopped, stopped looking. But if you create this expectation and this consistent cadence of, you know, once a day, Jay posts something and I really enjoy his posts or once a day, Jay emails me and I really enjoy reading it. It's this expectation and trust that you build that what you're putting out there is worth consuming. <laughs> is that how you started your business, uh, leaving cross checks? Like, was it that, um, aspect of people knowing what you're up to? Because, you were also pretty public about leaving the company. Yeah, the the piece that I wrote about leaving Crosschecks is something like 10x more read than my next best post. It was crazy. Um, I was able to kind of get to that point because my network is strong and what I'm doing is so community-based. The way I marketed it and messaged it off the bat wasn't as strong as it could have been. So a lot of the people who jumped on board early were people who trusted me, frankly. And so I'm lucky in that sense. But 
definitely, definitely working on the messaging so it doesn't require a complete knowledge and trust of me, but more of a trust of the process and the product itself. Um, but yeah, what, with with the email list, I was writing about my process of leaving and starting a company. And so once it got to the point where I said, okay, uh, I've run a beta group, I've tested it. Um, honestly, there were some findings I had of things that I could do better and I've done those things. And now I'm, I'm opening applications for new members of Unreal Collective. Here's how you apply. Also, here's a discount. People from the email list jumped on and applied because they trusted me and they understood what I was doing because I was updating them fairly regularly. I wasn't writing about it every day. I was writing every day, but it wasn't all about Unreal. But they, they knew what I was working through and they knew what the concept was. And so, yeah, that was part of the reason why I was able to fill up this first round of members. I was only aiming to start two new groups. Groups are of five people. And so I thought if I get 10 people in, that's a win. And I got 15. And that was closing out several applications too. How how'd you decide to leave your job? Um, and how did you manage that transition? Yeah, I was I was pretty transparent when I took the job because I had come from working on Tixers uh, with my partner, Alex. And we, we started that up and we sold it. And I realized that entrepreneurship is no joke. <laughs> and if you're going to go out and do something on your own, you need to be super serious about it because it's going to be really hard. And you got to be committed because it's going to take years to really make it happen and make it a reality. And after Tixers, I was burnt out. I didn't know what idea... Um, I would follow after that. I was still telling myself I didn't have good ideas. And so I said, you know, this is a good time. And actually, this was advice from a mentor too. But it was a good time to sort of swallow my pride and say, I just had an amazing experience. Um, out of college, I started a company and had a modest exit. That's pretty great. But I still have a lot to learn. Um, and so I'm going to go do that. And I'm going to learn from another entrepreneur who's local so I can make an impact in the community, but also work at a company that's seeing other things, leading a team. I didn't have a chance to lead a real engineering team at Tixers. We worked with contractors most of the time. I created a very detailed list of, I think it was six different subjects that I wanted to learn about. And then I had goals within each one, things like leadership and marketing and sales and company culture and uh, venture capital. I had a lot of stuff I very specifically wanted to learn. And I showed that to our COO like a week after I joined. I said, hey, Bubba, look, these are the things that I specifically want to learn while I'm here. And, um, you know, anything you can do to help me learn those things to put me in a position to learn these things, that would be great. And as it got to be close to a year, which was kind of what I had assumed it would be me working there for about a year. I was thinking, well, it's getting about that time. Um, and I would check back against those goals. And I was seeing that most of them had been checked off. And the things that weren't checked off, my role wasn't really in a position where I was making active steps towards learning those things. And so we had a, we had a company meeting one day and we we're going to change the, the makeup, the, the way the organization operated is going to have a pretty serious impact on what my role looked like. And it wasn't going to help me learn those things. So I, I just said, you know, this is the least painful time for me to make a change uh, for both me and the company. And so I, I told our COO, I said, I, th I think I'm going to leave my seat at the table here. And it was, it was a super friendly split because everyone understood that if I was going to leave, this was the perfect time. <laughs> and so I just, I just went for it. I mean, I had been working up towards it. I thought I'd probably be there for another month, month and a half than I was, but it was the perfect sort of inflection point. And I just used that as a, as a jumping off so point. So that felt pretty natural. And had you been running some of the Unreal groups um, prior to making that jump? I had outlined what I wanted unreal to look like and the assumptions that I had. And so if we look at this, uh, if we look at this chronologically, I started forming the idea for unreal late March, mid March. And I told myself I would start the, the test group at the beginning of April. And I was a little slow to get that started. Uh, I left my job, I think it was April 20 ish, April 21st, maybe. And I started that test group two weeks later. And when I left, 
I, I knew that I wanted to actually take some time off because I didn't have any time off between Tixers and Crosschecks. I actually, my two weeks notice at Tixers overlapped a little bit with uh, starting at Crosschecks. So I had no downtime. And I wanted to take a little bit of time off. And so I did some math, I did some budgeting, and I said, if I don't make a penny through the end of June, and remember I left, I was done out of the company before the end of April. But I said, if I don't make a penny before the end of June, that's okay with me because this is my vacation and kind of exploratory phase. And so I started the first test group of Unreal the second week of May. And um, I said, if this goes well, you know, I'm going to jump into this full time and spin this up and use that as my primary income. But in the meantime, I did a couple of a couple of projects that gave me a little bit of money. Uh, I did some web- website work. I did a a naming project for a startup in San Francisco. And so I overcame that expectation of myself. I made money before the end of June and that test group was going well. And so late June, I opened up applications to, to start new micro communities within Unreal. Did, did you just make like, so you're thinking about Unreal, you're at your job. Um, you have this idea. Was the idea something that was inspired by something that you always wanted was it just an idea that you just thought hey if i can make this work this is like my ideal job like i'm going to create a job for myself or was it like this is something i think that the market wants like how did you come up with um the idea at that time it was a mix of sort of all of that so in march i had this sort of chance coffee meeting with a guy in columbus and we were just talking there was no agenda for the meeting, but he was saying, he just said offhand, you know, if I were you, I would consider facilitating mastermind groups. And I didn't have a term at that time for, well, I'll back up. He said, I would consider facilitating mastermind groups. And I said, what's a mastermind group? He says, oh, well, I'm a part of a couple of them. Basically, it's a group of five to 10 people who get together on a regular schedule and they help each other work through problems. And I said, oh, yeah, I mean, people do that all the time. Like that's that's just part of learning and doing things. I didn't have the word, the vocabulary for that. And so I said, so why do you think I'd be good at that? And he says, well, based on your network here in Columbus, I think you could pull together some really good groups of people. And I know that you're good at facilitating because I, I had facilitated startup weekends for years. And usually I'm super critical of ideas and hesitant. And I just couldn't think of a reason why that wouldn't work. And so I I said to myself, this may be what I can do on my own starting off after cross checks. And what was really attractive to me was that there was very little startup cost or or it wouldn't be hard to test that and see if it worked. And what I I thought about was, okay, traditional mastermind groups still take like five digital marketers, let's say, or, or graphic designers. And they all are in the same phase of their business. They do the same thing. And it's a super technical look at how can we work through these problems we're all having. And there's totally merit in that. But after college, I had lived in this house with six other adult men. It was just this weird situation where um, a relative stranger was like, hey, I'm filling this house full of musicians and entrepreneurs. I think you'd fit in. Do you want to live there? And I thought that sounded interesting. Uh, I didn't think about my learning intentionally at the time. I just thought it sounded interesting. And so I did it. And for two years, I was around these people who were musicians who are entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, management consultants, people doing really creative, awesome work that wasn't like mine. And I saw so much benefit to my work by being around them and understanding their problems, what they're going through and applying things from their world to my own. And so when I heard this mastermind concept, I thought I want to do that, but I want to do it with a mixed group of people who bring very different perspectives to the table. And that's what I wanted to test. And so I curated that first group uh, super intentionally um, so I could see, okay, these people have different projects and backgrounds, but I basically could line out how I saw them all overlapping with what they were working on so that they would all both benefit and be able to provide value to everyone involved. And so I curated that group and it worked really well. But to answer your original question, all of that to me looked like an opportunity that fit this puzzle I made for myself when I quit cross checks, which was I knew exactly how much money per month I had to make to cover my expenses. I knew that I wanted to be location independent and I knew that I wanted to be very uh, 
intentional, choosy about who I worked with. I wanted to have full control over who I worked with and what I worked with them on. And so that was like this puzzle, this three constraint puzzle. And I knew that with this idea, I could fit that to solve that puzzle. What what gave you the confidence to charge um, for the service? So I, I feel like I see a lot of people who are very talented in a certain area. It seems like everybody has something that they're just like really great at and it comes easy to them. I think for you, it was this facilitating and, and sort of not networking, but more bringing the right people together. How does somebody charge for that talent? Like how did you either feel confident to, to do that or know how to do that? Well, I felt confident in it because I knew it was providing real value to people. And I saw it in the beta group that I was running. And like you asked a little bit ago, I have the experience of investing personally in coaching and mentorship and community. And I've lived in those communities. So I've seen the benefit. I've provided the benefit. And at the end of the day, it's a service that I'm providing. So you know, I talked to people to gauge their interest and there was interest in paying for it. They said, I'm both interested in this and I would pay for that. And so it was really just trusting that, hey, believe in yourself, believe in the value you're providing and believe in your product. And if you are giving a product that provides value, you should be able to charge for that. And so, you know, it was putting it out there. I will say that was one of the scariest moments was when I opened up applications and put the price out there and said, this is this is the deal. This is what I'm charging. So how can uh, how can people either start building their own network to uh, to leverage that to sell the thing that um, they maybe want to create and put out in the world? How can people like get started from square one today? Like, let's say you're at a job and you know that you don't want to be there, but um, eventually you want to maybe jump out on your own. Like, how would you just get started from like ground zero, square one? I think it's easier to meet people than we think. Uh, it's a super sort of isolating culture that we live in uh, and people crave connection. It's just reaching out and being that person to reach out the olive branch and take that vulnerable leap and say, Hey, I want to talk to you. <laughs> so I don't think, I don't think that bar is that high. I think reaching out to people on LinkedIn or at a coffee shop or asking for introductions, just start meeting people regularly. I think I have, two to three one-on-one -on -one meetings with somebody every day on average when I'm back in Columbus, just constantly talking to and meeting new people. But, you know, if you look at starting an, a business or starting an online business, uh, I just wrote about this on my newsletter a few days ago. You go online and you have all these people talking about how to start a business and they give you like this 10 step format. And the first step being find a need and fill it, which is the hardest thing. You can't start a business unless you're selling something. And so you need to figure out something you can sell, whether it's a skill that you have that you can monetize and say, I will provide this service to you, whether it's a physical product you can create and sell to somebody that would use it. You've got to have something of value that you can sell to somebody and sales is relationships and courage, really courage to go up and ask somebody. What's the biggest something. mistake that somebody makes in, uh, in that same spot? I think that's very valuable advice for maybe what to do next. What's, what's mistakes that someone's making right there typically? Well, the mistake is thinking that sales happen from a website or sales happen from an Instagram and even if you build a website and you make an Instagram that's showcasing your product and you get it in front of the right person, we're so distracted in quickly going through things, that message may not resonate with them. And so, A, you may get a false negative when you do that, but B, you're just not really selling. It's such a passive way of selling. You need to go and talk to people and get in front of them and have their attention and then create tension itself to say, I have this solution for your problem. Will you pay so the, for good, it? the good news is the thing that's still scarce. So yes, we've got more tools. We've got websites, Instagrams, Facebooks. The thing that's still scarce is actually just getting out there and um, having a conversation with somebody. Totally, totally. The ability to sell and that comes a lot from relationships or at least being able to communicate with somebody. I think that's uh, great advice. So let's let's jump to um, some more personal and kind of rapid fire type questions. What's the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you over the last three to four years? <laughs> oh man that's a tough one I don't get embarrassed all that often I, I kind of prescribe 
or subscribe to the Seth Godin definition of shame, which is someone else imposing on you that you should be embarrassed about something. But shame, shame is a two-way street. Like you have to opt into shame. You have to say, I will take this guilt that you want me to feel and I will feel it. <laughs> I just don't do that. I think that's very uh, true. Just knowing you, I'd say that's uh, I, I think that's actually the perfect answer. And um, yeah, I'd say a lot of people probably in Columbus say that Jay has no shame um, <laughs> based on like startup weekends and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's totally. a badge of honor. Totally. I'm okay with that. I just can't think of something that was embarrassing because that, that is to say like, I feel this scar of a time I made myself vulnerable and, felt hurt. And honestly, a, a personal flaw is that I don't make myself vulnerable enough either. So I, that might be a reason why I don't feel what's, it. What's uh, what's the biggest risk that you, like if you had to look back over the last five years, what was the riskiest thing that you feel like you did? Hmm. I think objectively I've done a lot not, of, not to other things, people, you know, uh, whether, to you, I, like what felt like the biggest risk to you? I think doing Tixers out of college um, joining joining the founder. He was a single founder at the time, really didn't have much of anything started, knew he needed some help. And joining on with him, uh, I was broke at the time because I'd just gotten through college. And basically the first thing we did was work out exactly what my personal expenses were so that my salary to keep the business afloat, and he was doing the same, my salary was just pretty much exactly what I needed to cover my bills. <laughs> and so we didn't know if that was going to go well. We didn't know how well that was going to go. I could have just taken, you know, no salary, had no savings and done that for years. If things didn't work out the way they did, I could have started off in a real hole, but that was what felt the most risky. And that was partially the way I felt it. It was partially because uh, I felt like my parents and my family didn't really understand what I was doing. It kind of seemed like Jay was playing house with his career. Um, what yeah, what, is, what does your day look like on a typical weekend uh, during the day? So Saturday, Sunday, during the day, uh, maybe when you're back in Columbus, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. I love my weekends and they've changed a lot over the last couple of years. Now, if I go out at all it will be on friday and it will be pretty moderate it'll be pretty pretty low-key but most times uh i'll wake up fairly early for a weekend day at least compared to what i used to sometime around nine um you know during the week i'll wake up at seven so i might get two hours of sleep wake up um have a coffee I'll go get a little bit of work done in the morning a lot of time i'll actually have a couple of meetings in the morning for coffee uh or tea because it's it's a forcing function to get me out of bed, but also it's a good way to start the day. It's a way to get fired up. Uh, and then I'll work a little bit on my own. I'll, I'll go to the gym and listen to a podcast. I'll make some lunch kind of slowly. Usually I, I still work during the day most of the time on the weekends. It's just kind of at my own pace. It's a lot of learning activities. Um, and I will meet with what, some people too. What app too. is most helpful to your productivity or to like your weekly uh, just work or um, living? Uh, Trello. Trello for sure. I think the whole Google suite is kind of invaluable to what I use. But I think that's kind of commoditized, that stuff. Trello is how I task manage my entire life, my personal life, my business. It has a great mobile app and it's it really helps me. Trello actually in, in conjunction with Evernote. Because I basically make it a policy that I don't rely on my memory for anything. Anything that comes to mind that I need to remember or think to do, it becomes a to-do list item in Trello or it becomes a thought that I write down in Evernote so that I immediately remove that cognitive burden of remembering things. What's the worst advice you've gotten? The worst advice I've gotten. Oh, boy. That you either took or uh, uh, decided not to take. <laughs> hmm... We can come back if you need. Yeah, let's come back to that one. I want to make sure that's that's a good one. <laughs> well, there's there's a lot of advice out there. So, uh, what? Um, where do you go to learn currently? So, you just finished the All MBA, correctly? Correct. Um, mm -hmm. Where are you currently going to? I guess like quickly advance your skills or knowledge in a certain area. I do a few things. I subscribe to a lot of other email lists and newsletters. And a lot of times those people are running webinars that are like a free activity to sell something they're selling. And I'll just take the free webinar and learn from that. 
I'll read their newsletters. I'll learn from that. Uh, I read a lot of books, mostly audio books, which I can listen to when I work out, whether it's running or lifting. Um, and then honestly, I get a lot of really good content from my network, whether it's some of these Slack communities I'm a part of or my Facebook feed. I don't really troll Twitter much. Mostly the good stuff kind of bubbles up to the top and I know who I trust and I only follow people that I trust. What's the most uh, common misconception about starting a business? Oh, that it's risky. <laughs> well, you know, objectively, I'm starting a business now and I have very, very low risk because I'm a single dude with no, ladies, uh, with no debt and no family living in a very low cost of living place. Uh, and I have some savings. So really all that added up doesn't seem that risky. And so I found ways to de-risk the way I'm actually starting it. It's not super capital intensive. But when you take a job, you know, you're filling a role that somebody thinks they have that may not always be there. And there's also a cap put on to what you can earn and what your role entails that is imposed by somebody else. It's outside of your control completely. To me, that's really risky is taking something that may not always be there and it's not really in your power. At least when you're starting a business or making your own role, you kind of control your own destiny of whether that role you've created for yourself will continue to exist, whether that's innovating what you're doing or just going out and selling more. I think that's you know, you take that into your control. And if you take that seriously, it's much less risky. What book or movie has taught you most about life? Oh, boy. Book or movie has taught me the most about life. We can go back to the previous question if there's some bad advice that's floating around in your head. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'll, I'll start with the book. I think the book that I go back to time and time again is How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it's really simple, seemingly obvious advice, all the things that it tells you to do, but they're so true and they're so applicable and timeless and helpful and doing anything. Uh, that's the book that I learned the most from. And that was a recommendation from someone. What's from the BBC one too. Um, bit from that book that really sticks with you? Uh, is the remembering names. And that's the reason why I use social media so much is the sweetest sound to anybody's ear is their own name. And so okay. if you can remember somebody's name, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it really sticks with them. And so when I see people, I can greet them with a big smile and say their name and say what's up. And it's immediately known and felt that this is a friend. This is not an acquaintance. This is somebody that cares about me enough to remember my name and to greet me with a smile when you don't remember somebody's name, it's an immediate signal that I don't care enough to to like keep up with who you are as a person. And how can you possibly ask something of someone who you don't care enough to learn and remember their name? Awesome. Okay, I got. I have two more questions for you. Uh, one sort of rapid fire. The other one is a bit longer. Uh, my first question is, what can I do today? Like, what's one simple thing I can do to either understand my personal brand or begin to grow my personal brand? Like, I think one thing you've done effectively is build a brand that people are aware of and they get what you're about. And people, you know, a lot of people like what you're about, um, but it's pretty clear sort of who Jay Klaus is. So what's something I can do today or a few things I can do today to start to develop that or learn about that? I think, and you know, this is something I took away from the coach that I worked with. You have to understand yourself and be comfortable with yourself because you can't really expect to be authentic to other people if you're not authentic to yourself and you can't be authentic to yourself unless you know yourself. So this is like, you know, pre-steps before you can have a personal brand that is authentic. You have to know who you are authentically and be comfortable with yourself. Um, and then it's living that, putting that out into the world and forming relationships that are close to people. And then honestly, it can become a little bit like starting a business or building a product. If you think about yourself as the product, you can go and get feedback from people and ask them, you know, what do you think of this and this being me? Like, you know, feedback is such a critical part of growth and improvement in all things. You should be comfortable asking people for feedback on 
how you're conducting your business, how you're operating as an employee, how you are, you know, living as a friend. Like, hey, is there anything that I am doing that really bothers you or that really like something that you really like that I do? You should feel comfortable asking that to some people. And I know that's kind of weird and no, awkward. I think, but, I think that's the uh, theme. If anything, there's a theme of the show is sort of uh, gathering feedback, be it the business or you know your personal brand. So I think that makes total sense. Okay, so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, I don't want to say the industry, um, because obviously that covers a lot, but sort of like, what's next? Like, where do you see things going? And how are you working in a way that you will be adapted to, you know, what's coming over the next few years? Whether, whether it's unreal or yeah, you know, you personal, know. I mean, I think a lot of people feel anxiety about the shifting landscape that's happening because of technology and culture and um, they want to be equipped for the next few years. Like what do, what do you sort of see happening um, if you have any forecasts and, and or how do you see your own um, work or business developing to sort of meet that? Totally. Uh, and, you know, I've been in tech for a long time. So I've, I've geeked out over that. I've taken a little bit of a step back from the geeking because things move so quickly. I saw some amazing, some amazing list of companies that didn't exist in 2006 that are such an integral part of our life now. Things like Uber, um, the iPhone didn't exist, Square, like crazy things that we take for granted and we use all the time. And so it's hard to really future cast super, super far uh, I think autonomous cars are a really interesting topic that are going to have a big impact and still have a lot of questions that people aren't questioning enough. Um, but for me, what's important to me is I enjoy working with high performing people who are taking risks and doing projects that excite them. And really my business is helping other people achieve their potential. Like there's this gap that people feel between what they know they're capable of and what they want to be doing and what they're actually doing right now. And they don't know why they're not doing the thing they want to be doing and know they're capable of. And they're not even sure a lot of the times how to get there, how to make steps towards that. They just look at other people who are, to use one of your metaphors, on top of this mountain that they want to climb. And they're saying, how do I get up there where they are? I know I have it in me. Why can't I live that? I help people close that gap. And that's something that's always, in my opinion, going to be relevant and useful. I think it's great advice for somebody who's concerned about where things might go in the future because maybe the best way of staying um, in kind of a good place economically is by surrounding yourself with people who are always trying to grow to the next level. And so if you do that, then you'll sort of always be um, in the know and in a space to continue to do work. Totally. I am not at all a fan of Gary Vaynerchuk, but there was a talk he gave one time and they were asking him about the future of the workforce because AI is going to steal so many jobs. And he gave the best response to this idea that I've ever heard that I completely subscribe to. And he just said, look, I am completely uninspired by this conversation. I hate this topic and I hate talking about it because let's say AI comes and takes Jim's, Jim's job. Jim should adapt and pick up skills that will get him one of the jobs that exists now. But Jim is too worried about watching the Browns on TV on Sunday and he's not doing that. That is not my problem. That is Jim's problem, not adapting. <laughs> and I don't think you have to be completely ahead of this curve to future cast and say, okay, my job is going to not exist in five years. I need to start learning to code so I can you know, do that five years from now. There will be other jobs that are equivalent to what you're doing now, in my opinion, that if you have some sort of drive and ambition and you're willing to put yourself out there and maybe even swallow your pride a little bit, that'll exist. Um, and I think you'll be fine. If you're monetizing a skill effectively now, you're only going to keep monetizing that skill effectively if you are at least a little aware of changes in the industry. And if you're not, then, you know, you're just going to that's, that's your own problem. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how else to put it. Like you have to continue to care and keep working and learning and investing in yourself so that you can be there and, and weather yeah, those storms. Always, always keep developing is sort of what I'm hearing too. And I think that's, that's a great place to kind of end because that's the purpose of unreal is how are we going to continue to develop? How are we going to all get to the next step? Um, and you guys help each other do that in these groups. So 
Uh, give me a few links for people to follow you and we'll wrap up the show. Um, you know, finding Unreal, finding your website and the um, email list, et cetera. Totally. Um, everything is J Klaus, J A Y C L O U S E, J Klaus.com, at J Klaus on Twitter or Facebook.com slash J Klaus. It's the same on LinkedIn, et cetera. Um, unrealcollective.com is the website for the business. If you go to jklaus.com, you will find a link to Unreal. But I would say join the email list at jklaus.com. I share tips for how you can continue to invest in yourself, improve yourself, close that gap that I was talking about. And I also share opportunities to get involved with Unreal or personal coaching, which usually goes hand in hand. Um, but also share discounts with the email list. Awesome, man. Well, hey, that was a great conversation. Um, I feel like you just shared a ton of valuable stuff for people looking to get started. Uh, Glad we get to hang some more while you're here in LA. I'm sure we'll speak again sometime soon, but uh, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me.